Are we recording? <laughs> oh yeah! It's like <laughs> a year from now. <laughs> Macho. Oh man, that's Vincy. I like that my kids know that I'm healthy and strong and fit, and that their mom is healthy and strong and fit. Like, okay, I can still get better without having to do a max effort every single day. Smashing yourself on the roller for uh, an hour, right? you're good by the next day as long as you had a, a sandwich in the net. Okay, so this is our first episode in a long time. <laughs> we tried to record this episode, I think it was in November. Yeah. Somewhere around there. And we did it and we weren't entirely happy with it. So we decided to revisit it at a later date. And this is the later date. So we're going to try it um, in a different way today, where it's just myself and Tom. And it's not going to sound as good as normal because we're on Zoom, but it should still be fun. Um, you'll probably notice a lot of pauses in the episode because Tom's going to have to do lots of chop suey and uh, <laughs> try to <laughs> try to make try to make the pauses seamless, but make all this make sense. Um, and we're going to be doing a lot of reading, or I will be doing a lot of reading and trying to help listeners understand what this is about. This is, de- this is definitely going to be a, a technical podcast, um, but it's, I, I found it very fun going through it because I really liked, I really like learning the history of it. <clears throat> um, and it was just, it was just very, I, I, I really liked it. I just liked where it came from, how it was developed. The initial intention of its development is not what I would have ever guessed. Um, yeah. So, well, where do you want to start, Tom? I think just why we are discussing the topic. What made you think to cover it? Yeah. Um, I would say, well, in people in fitness, like the term anaerobic is just, it's it's like, even if it's not understood what it is, it, people know what it means. You know what I mean? Like if you said, oh, well, this is going to be very anaerobic, they would, they would probably have things in their head they're thinking of like pain uh, or unsustainable or hard or that type of stuff. Um, and whether they know what anaerobic actually means physiologically or not, but they would probably think of it in those terms, like those things would come in their head. So it's just a very common word and a common, um, just something that, that, that is, I think a lot of people just in, like, just understand what it means, even if they don't actually understand what it means. So I kind of wanted to go back through the, the history of where that, ter- not so much where that term, but where a certain term, the anaerobic threshold uh, where it came from and what it's, uh, what its utility was or what it was for. Um, and it initially, I initially want to do that because I, um, I follow these guys on Twitter and they put out a paper, um, uh, probably, I don't know when it was, when did the paper come out? It said, who's oh, the guys? Are yeah, you talking like Rossiter? 2021. So they put out a paper called the anaerobic threshold, 50 years, 50 plus years of controversy. Uh, from David Poole, Harry Rossiter, those two were arguing the pro side, and George Brooks and Bruce Gladden were arguing the con side. Con side being that it's not a valid uh, threshold or concept, and David Poole and Rossiter were arguing it is a good uh, threshold or concept. So that's probably where I first was like, huh, let's dig into this and see. Um, See if there's something interesting there, because lots of times when I read things, I go, this might be an interesting podcast or an interesting thing to kind of just make light of or talk about. 
So that's kind of where I started. And then I got into okay. it more and we got into it more and I thought it was, it seemed interesting. And I, I mostly, cause I was just really surprised about the impetus of it. Okay. And then I think uh, at this point we should probably just define what it is. Yeah. That picture. Okay. Okay. So I sent, I sent this to you from an article, I think it was with Rossiter in it, but they define the anaerobic threshold as um, a widely used measure of submaximal or sustainable exercise capacity. It is defined as the oxygen uptake during incremental exercise above which arterial lactate begins to rise in a sustained manner above resting levels. This reflects an increasing contribution of glycolysis, which they term in brackets anaerobic metabolism, to overall metabolism. The rise in lactate results from its synthesis via glycolysis exceeding its clearance rate causing an associated metabolic acidosis. The cause of this imbalance remains controversial. It occurs at lower exercise intensity in the presence of oxygen supply limitation. The anaerobic threshold is one of several terms used to describe this threshold behavior. Other terms include lactate threshold, lactate acidosis threshold, ventilatory threshold, and gas exchange threshold. Anaerobic threshold is the preferred term in the pre-operative language. And um, that definition was taken from a paper mostly about uh, what it says in the end there about pre-operative care for cardiac or surgical patients. I mean, I thought that point was interesting about the cardiac patients <clears throat> yeah. for this CHF patients trying to test the lactic level as yeah. determining the anaerobic threshold initially. Which okay, there's, there's a, that, that's a good thing. So here's, there's, um, a little bit of history first, we can get that out of the way. So, yeah. um, the main paper, the anaerobic threshold, 50 plus years of controversy. Um, there's a section in here where, um, um, Wasserman who's on the, uh, who's the original inventor or coined the term anaerobic threshold. Um, I believe George Brooks is recalling a, an, a letter uh, that he received from Wasserman um, regarding this. So in Wasserman's letter, it says, evaluation would be best done during exercise when the heart was being stressed. The first sign of heart failure would be reflected in the failure of the circulatory system to deliver adequate oxygen to the metabolizing tissues, that being the exercising muscles. Since the muscle oxygen requirement will be markedly increased by exercise, the failure of the heart to transport oxygen adequately will result in lactate acidosis. So that's like, that's the real main argument between the two of them. That, cause that, that was Wasserman's initial, um, his initial reasoning. And there's another good point in there in following that paper. I can't see it here. Um, but basically Wasserman's mentor back in the early, the mid sixties um, asked him, and they actually have the quote right here. So uh, was it possible uh, for the examiner to detect the threshold of anaerobic metabolism during a work test and to avoid exhaustive and potentially dangerous exercise of patients with heart disease under study? So the whole point was for him to try to develop a test or an assessment for a cardiac failure or heart disease patients that would be non-exhaustive, but also predictive. And so that's where they came up with the gas exchange threshold and coining it the, um, 
Uh, that's not where they came up with the gas exchange threshold, but that's where they use the gas exchange threshold as a way to measure or introduce the concept of the anaerobic threshold, um, where he talks about it as being a point of increased reliance on anaerobic metabolism as, increase in, as exercise intensity increases. And he was, and this is from his, the, the main paper that keeps getting cited is called Detecting the Threshold of Anaerobic Metabolism. This is 1965, I think, or 67. Um, anyway, and the in the introduction section of that paper, he talks about uh, where they lean on this guy, A.B. Hill, who if anybody knows exercise physiology is, is like a seminal figure in uh, exercise physiology. And his initial discussion about lactate formation being a result of muscles lacking oxygen. And then so they use that type of premise or that type of idea to feed forward into his development of the anaerobic uh, threshold and what they were measuring, um, which feeds into where, we're, where uh, that, that paper that came out last year, just the argument stems from. Because the, they're, they're arguing about the initial conception of the idea or the initial, um, I guess, the initial thinking behind the idea of the anaerobic threshold. I think uh, at this point, we should probably explain what the arguments for or against it is. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> Uh, the arguments for it, the arguments against it, and in, in, in this paper specifically, um, which is interesting when because you've read it too, the arguments against it are agreed by both the pro and the con side. <laughs> they both agree yeah. on the same thing, right? Um, and the three, the three main arguments taken from the paper, um, and it's from Gladden and Brooks, I believe. They don't say who writes what sections of the paper, but I think you can kind of get a feel for it. So the first one, the first argument against the anaerobic threshold, and these are all factual uh, statements, there is no dysoxia. And dysoxia is defined as the amount of oxygen available in the muscle below a very, very low level. It's not anoxia, so no oxygen. It's just that the pressure of oxygen available is real low. And there's no evidence of that at any exercise intensity. And, and definitely not at the anaerobic threshold per se. Um, and two, uh, lactate is always produced and disposed of under fully aerobic conditions. So, and there's a good, a good quote from, uh, or there's a good quote from Brooks on that exact, uh, exact thing. So on that part, he says lactate is produced and disposed of continuously under fully aerobic conditions from the moment of conception through the termination of life. So that's correct. And three, lactate measurement in the blood is a product of appearance versus disposal. And that's a point that they make, they make a, a Brooks makes a lot, a lot of discussion around that you can't even know the amount being produced um, just from the what's in the blood because it's a, it's a combination of what's being produced and what's being disposed of both clearance mechanisms and oxidation in the mitochondria. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, so then he goes, there's another part with that of not knowing the actual uh, amount of lactate is that increase in blood lactate at any um, uh, above the lactate threshold merely reflects a higher rate of appearance in the blood versus disappearance. And there is no evidence of anoxia or dysoxia. So those are the three main things. There's no dysoxia, lactate's always produced, and you can't actually know the concentration of when there's a threshold of something. That's what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And that's for being obviously against it. That's being against it. Yeah. Yeah. The for it is like, it's, it's not, it's not as, 
it's just not as obvious as that because those points are just really, they're factual. But the, the people who still think it's a valid concept agree with that because they, they're like, this yeah. is true. Uh, one of the authors- but Do you think, yeah. uh, well, I guess no, because I was going to say, do you think it's because it's uh, lactate was, is easier of a test to find out, but then think of it like critical power is actually an easier test to figure it out. So that'd be wrong. <laughs> Well, the, the, the gas, the gas, the re, again, the reason they use the gas exchange threshold or the, and the anaerobic threshold, the reason it's so valuable, right. is because, um, in which they use the terms it's, it's effort independent. Like you don't have, people don't have to try hard. They just have to get on a bike and start biking a bit quicker. Right. And they're going to get to a point where, um, like the amount of carbon dioxide being produced is going to start increasing rapidly or out of step with oxygen consumption. And they're going to be able to detect that change. And that's going to happen usually uh, way before you're ever even going to get tired. Uh, and just for an example, like you, Tom, your best 2K row is like, what, 135 for yeah. 500 average or something? Yeah, something like that. 130, yeah, 136, yeah. I think. Your, and to guess what your critical power on the row would be, would probably like 140, what, like 141, 234, somewhere around there probably. Mm -hmm. And your gas exchange. And that's pressure. where it usually feels like hardest is going yeah. a little quicker than that. Yep. Yeah. And then for you, like, a, like your gas exchange threshold or your anaerobic threshold in these terms would probably, I'm going to guess, would probably be around just a bit below two minutes or one, like if you were to measure it, if you actually measure it, it's probably around there or maybe a little bit more, mm -hmm. um, a little bit faster. So to think with people, that's the pace they're talking about. You rowing like one, 159 for 500 meters, which is not hard, right? But think about how valuable that would be in studying those patients who are heart disease patients and going, no, you don't have to kill yourself. We just got to do this little tiny test because we're trying to detect a problem far before anything, any, any, any bit of intensity. That's the whole point. We're trying to get like the first inklings of a problem without having to get really far into intensity. And so to me, that just seems like such a great idea to go like, wow, we can get all of this information and, and be able to do it on anybody like repeatedly day after day with very little stress. That's a really, really good test, right? That's really good. As opposed to how fitness testing is normally done, you die and then you can't do it. Like, like uh, Kendra, she's going to do a test today, 22.1. She's going to die. She's not going to want to do that same test tomorrow, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, and, and the worst part of it, well, this, this episode won't air before she does it, um, <laughs> is that test's not going to tell her anything, right? She's right. not going to know anything from it. She's just going to know this is what my score was on wall walks, dumbbell snatches, and box jumps. And you so, say, when, when you say not tell her anything, you just mean from a physiological point. Yeah. It's not going to give you anything. You're just going to go, well, wow, that's my score. All right. So where are we? I'm just going to finish off the initial, I'm going to finish off the initial paper and the whole point of it. Again, the whole point was that they were leaning on A.B. Hill's ideas from back in the 1920s about lactate forms from a lack of oxygen. Uh, Wasserman developed, wanted to develop a test where you could detect, potentially detect, um, a certain threshold of metabolism in heart failure patients. Um, again, that's non-exhaustive. And then fall in that paper, he details three different case studies in which this test was the, was the best predictor 
of what was going to happen or of what was going on with these individuals before the, before the doctors could actually figure out what was wrong with the heart because they had extremely low gas exchange thresholds or in his terms, they had a very low anaerobic threshold or anaerobic, yeah, anaerobic threshold. So the test was valid in these, in these populations and still, it's still extremely valid. Um, and Rossiter makes a point in another paper about how it could, it could be considered the best metric of pre of post-operative of recovery. If you just take like how, where their gas exchange threshold is right now, how likely these people are going to recover from all kinds of different surgeries. Okay. So that's, I guess that is part of the pro side, right? Is that, that, that is the, that's the validity of this test. Although they're, again, they're, they're not, they're not arguing the same thing. That's the real problem is that uh, the people who are arguing against the validity of it are literally just arguing against the name anaerobic. The people who are arguing for it are arguing for the validity of the test, which is where it's a bit confusing. Um, and you go, well, you guys don't really disagree on what's wrong with it. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's just the term anaerobic. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we're, let me try to find some. Well, uh, I'm just going to go over a couple more good things because the listeners will probably be interested to know this if you're if you're a coach anyway. So. And back in the 1920s, that's like, um, again, A.V. Hill suggesting the idea that it's like lactate forms because of a muscles lack oxygen. Um, and the, the, the authors in this paper, uh, I believe is George Brooks who mentioned this. So the alt, there's an alternate hypothesis put forward at the, at the same time in the 1920s, he said, and, um, and to quote the paper, it says the alternate hypothesis that lactate production was a means to produce ATP to power and sustain muscular contraction. So that's why it was that's why lactate in the blood was increasing is because lactate was being liberated as a way to create an, an additional fuel source as exercise intensity was increasing, which is pretty, that's a completely opposite way of thinking of it. So part one, the, the, again, the AV Hill version is lactate is increased because there's a lack of oxygen. The alternate one is lactate is increased as a way to liberate more fuel to create more, more fuel utilization for the muscles. And we're, and we're just measuring it, <laughs> which is like two worlds apart of what the, of really what the value of measuring lactate would be. And um, yeah, and it's like, if you just, if, if you were to trace those two lines from 1920 up to now, that's, this is why you would see, okay, these are totally different worldviews arguing about an, uh, arguing about the anaerobic threshold. It, in, in terms of, in terms of like actual exercise physiology, the anaerobic, like the anaerobic threshold doesn't exist. There's because, because if you're taking it literally as the anaerobic threshold, there is no anaerobic threshold because there's no point of dysoxia. That's, and that's like the real argument. There's no point of dysoxia. And like we were talking about in our, um, the lead up to this is that like the, the people who are against it are arguing it just in that way. Like there's no dysoxia. So how could you use the term anaerobic? And the people who are for it are sort of arguing um, that the significance of this threshold is that there is an increased reliance on anaerobic glycolysis above this threshold. That's really the argument. So one, yeah. there is no dysoxia, which both sides agree. The pro side just suggests above this threshold, you're going to have an increased reliance 
on what they would consider oxygen independent metabolism, which would be the breakdown of glycogen from anaerobic glycolysis um, and phosphocreatin. You're going to have that breakdown. Another line which I added um, of argument to support it is, um, is the concept of the, of the slow component of VO2. So the slow component of VO2 is basically just like an increased, basically it's, it's just a, it's basically a, an increased intake of oxygen above which would be needed if you were, if you were exercising below the lactate threshold. So again, you get on that rower and you're rowing at 205 per 500 meters, Tom. And so now we're saying for sure that's below your anaerobic threshold. I'm using scare quotes here for people that can't, aren't going to see this. Um, <laughs> So the idea is that like you're rowing at 205, the intake of oxygen for Tom, if we were to measure it, would rise rapidly and would, and would just flatten out completely. So it would, he would have a fast increase and there would be a complete plateau in oxygen intake. And it would happen within the first few minutes of exercise. If Tom was to go like say at 150 per 500 meters, so it's, it's, a, it's faster than his supposed lactate or anaerobic threshold. Um, but it's slower than his critical power. So he can do this pace for an extremely long time. What he, what's going to happen is the oxygen intake is going to increase like it would at the 205 or 500 meter mark. But from like the three, four, five minute mark, it's going to increase a little bit more and keep increasing a little bit before it stops increasing and hitting a plateau. And how, how quickly it reaches that plateau is basically the proximity uh, to the critical power and the distance from the anaerobic threshold. So if you're right up against the critical power, it's going to take a longer time for it to plateau. If you're just above the anaerobic threshold, it'll probably plateau a little more quickly. But there's a difference, right? Because there's an initial rise. And if you were below the anaerobic threshold in intensity, that initial rise would cover it and it would just flatten out. But that initial rise doesn't cover it. And then there's this little gap of extra oxygen intake. And it's just, it's basically what you would consider it's a measure of inefficiency. That's a met, and that's why like a lot of ultra endurance activities would be performed below the anaerobic again scarecrows threshold, um, because it's inefficient to exercise for long times above that threshold, because you're going to have an increased reliance on fast twitch muscle fibers. Again, the farther above it you go, the larger it's going to get, and you're going to break down glycogen and carbohydrate use way faster, because you're going to do a lot more anaerobic glycolysis. So that's another part of the argument is that the, like this only occurs above the anaerobic threshold. That's it. That's the only time it occurs in terms of like constant work rate activity on a rower or a bike or running or skiing or swimming. And it's safe to say at this, during this point that you're going to burn up more fuel than, than what you have available essentially. So that yeah. W prime to is put what, it well, to in put in really simple terms, like if you're below the anaerobic threshold, we'll use really, really simple things. So like, um, and it, it's always, you got to change it. So like, um, they usually do it in Watts, right? They try to put it in really, really specific terms of like, what's the oxygen intake per watt, um, to make that, to make that example. So like, let's say below the anaerobic threshold, I'm just throwing in a number you have to, mm -hmm. you have to consume 10 milliliters of oxygen for each increase in watt on the rower, if you're rowing in Watts. Okay. But the idea is that if, so if you're rowing at like, again, that 205 or 500 meters, I don't know what that equates to in Watts, but overall the average might be 10 milliliters of oxygen per watt. When you go above that, 
that number is going to go up for, for the watts. So you're going to start rowing faster, but now it's going to cost you 11 milliliters of oxygen, right? Versus if you're like, but why? I just went, I went proportionally faster. Why isn't the, why isn't it the same cost of, of auction? It's like, no, there's inflation. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's what happens, but this only occurs above this quote unquote anaerobic threshold. Um, another great, a great, uh, just again, another little tidbit of it, right. Is that where they, they start bringing it back to, or they start talking about, um, kind of under, under the lines of, um, of the heart failure patients, they bring it back to that. Uh, but I want to read out this part here. Yeah. So the, here's this one little story about these racers. And again, the significance of the quote unquote anaerobic threshold. So the maximum rate of nutritional intake in runners completing are uh, competing in a, um, in a transcontinental race across America, I think it's a 148 day race. Um, so the nutritional intake was found to be equivalent to 2.5 to three times the basal metabolic rate, meaning an exercise performance above this level for days or weeks could not be met by nutritional intake and therefore organismal homeostasis would be lost. This identifies a limit, albeit in endurance athletes, uh, for nutritional intake constraining human exercise performance. Reliance on glycolysis with net lactate accumulation above the lactate threshold for sustained performance, depleting carbohydrate, um, depletes carbohydrate uh, and disproportionately rapid rate compared with exercise below the lactate threshold, such that sustaining exercise above the lactate threshold would hasten limitations and reduce extreme endurance exercise performance. And this follows into, uh, if anybody has read that book, Burn, which I would highly recommend, it talks about the idea of the constrained energy model uh, in terms of nutritional intake. And so that number, that 2.5 to three times basal metabolic rate is a continual number that they use for what the limit of human endurance exercise is uh, for long, long durations, where it ends up being 2.5 to three times the max intake of calories you can handle. So if you're burning more than that per day with your activity, you're going to eventually run into a big problem because you can't even take in more calories than that, uh, I guess, by your digestion. So and also just to clarify that they're yeah. saying that that 2.5 to 3000 is the most that you can absorb. So even yes, if you're consuming course. beyond that, like if yeah. the myth of Michael Phelps consuming 10,000 calories, he's, he can only absorb two and a half to three times his. Yeah, exactly. BMR. And, and, and the author of that book, burn Herman Ponser goes through that exact example, uh, with yeah. Michael Phelps. Yeah. And discusses like how much he was actually consuming potentially versus what, like what Michael Phelps is superstardom might be is that maybe Michael Phelps isn't, isn't at 2.5 times BMR. Maybe that his real advantage is his digestive tract where he might be at 2.7. Right. So he can absorb an extra 500 calories a day, potentially compared to his competitors, which in terms of performance, that'd be really, really, really advantageous if you're bumping up against that limit. So to further from that point again, so if, if you're extra exercising at a point where you're at 2.5, three times, three and a half times basal metabolic rate, that's the most amount of activity you can sustain for a long time without literally probably dying or breaking down because that's, you're bumping up the, up against the limit of nutritional intake. And it goes into here where, and, and the whole point is that like people aren't going to run those races above the anaerobic threshold, quote unquote because it's too expensive because that number you, you would then be up to like three and a half, four times because it's just too expensive. It's way too expensive. 
And then it goes into like uh, back to the heart disease patient. So it says, uh, as an index of life uh, of life expectancy in heart disease patients, heart failure patients in whom gas exchange, gas exchange threshold is below 11 milliliters per kilogram per minute of oxygen have four times increased risk of death. And those whose uh, gas exchange threshold is less than 8.5 per kilogram per minute of oxygen had an even further increase. It is intriguing that sensitive thresholds for gas exchange around nine to 11 milliliters per kilogram per minute are equivalent to approximately 2.5 to three times basal metabolic rate, the maximum rate of nutritional intake identified with the endurance competitors. Light to extreme endurance activity athletes, sorry, like the, like the extreme endurance activity athletes, any activity that exceeds the lactate threshold, which would be even very light activity of daily living for some extremely impaired patients would accelerate the rates of glucose and glycogen utilization that may not be easy to replenish by nutritional intake and elderly patients uh, basically with uh, uh, absorption problems and metabolic function uh, would hasten the loss of organismal homeostasis. So they're, they're kind of, they're kind of going, okay, so for the endurance athletes, this is the limit. And for like heart disease people, because they also admit that we're not really sure why this is such a great metric, but is it possible that it's a great metric because their increased reliance on glycolysis occurs at such a low level of activity, which creates such a burden on the system in terms of recovery. And again, that you go back to the beginning of what was the initial intention of this development, regardless of what you want to call it by the name, that seems pretty damn good to me to be like, this is a really great test for its initial intention. And then it was hijacked and used not hijacked, it was, it was willfully moved <laughs> uh, into exercise. Um, yeah, and uh, so a couple more points of that. So there's a great, uh, there's another couple more connections here. And actually, Tom, ask me any question or ask any questions you want first before I get into the last point I'm going to make. No, I, I mean, at this point, as far as explaining the history and everything, I, I don't have any questions on that. Okay. Um, there's a quote here and they weren't, they weren't, they weren't critiquing Wasserman. Uh, and again, Wasserman's the person who initially put forward the anaerobic threshold idea. They weren't critiquing him, uh, in, in, in the, in the main paper, the anaerobic threshold, 50 plus years of controversy. Um, there's a point where it says during the period when Wasserman's ideas were evolving, he also published what he described as a springboard paper, which addressed the interaction of physiological mechanisms to provide a normal exercise response. It was within this 1967 Springboard paper that he introduced wide, his widely used gear model for the interaction of muscular, cardiovascular, and respiratory systems. So quickly, the gear model basically shows three different gears. It shows the respiratory gear, the, cert, the cardiac gear, and the muscular gear. And those gears are all, in, all interconnected, and they all turn in unison. Um, and he came up with that idea in the late 60s. And a great point on that is that when there's a, a really good physiologist, Mark Burnley, he puts out this content on his YouTube, uh, All Out Physiology. He's done as much research as anybody in terms of critical power, critical torque, and he's a well-respected researcher. And I was listening to his, uh, one of his, I wanted to find that quote from him uh, before, I, before I called you today. I can't remember exactly what it is, but he, he said something to the effect of, for my money, the Wasserman's gears model is the best way to explain 
the what happens in the body in terms of the response to exercise, at least aerobic exercise. Again, he I think we should put a picture of it too when we put yeah. the podcast. So yeah, I can put a picture of that up, or we can just uh, yeah have it up there, or I can just even just uh, just um, just capture that little video and post it. Mm-hmm. It is really good, right? So this is fifty years later, and Burnley's going like this is as good as it probably this is as good as it gets. This is so well explained, and it covers everything. It looks really simple and people, um, I guess people kind of argue with it, whatever, but again, from 50 years ago, kind of looking in the dark, sort of thing, cause they can't measure that much. He got a lot, right. Like there was so much right with what he was talking about and how it was happening, but it wasn't completely right. And, um, another concept, which, which I just mentioned, which was developed around the exact same time from a different group, uh, was the concept of the critical power. And that was developed um, by the work of Monod and Scherer. And I think it says it's 1965. Um, and it's funny enough, right? These two, these two papers, like so Wasserman's paper in the mid 1960s and Monod and Scherer, these two research, research and research groups never connected. There's no like, I looked through their papers, there's no citing each other's work or any of that stuff. Probably because of the language barrier, I'm guessing, because I think Monod and Scherer, most, most of their work was published in French. But they came up with the idea, um, or they were measuring and trying to study uh, the idea of like, like what's the what's the work output of a muscle? Like, and when does when does fatigue occur, and how much work can it do? And so there's this really important quote from their paper, and this is again from 1965. It says, theoretically and practically speaking, it is important to be able to state a the amount of work a muscle can do before being exhausted, and the conditions of a fatigueless task. The critical power of a muscle or a muscular group corresponds to the maximum rate it can keep up for a very long time without fatigue. So when the dynamic work is passive, when the dynamic work is considered, it is important to remember that this capacity cannot be measured by a single test in which a given amount of work is performed. It is necessarily exhaustive, uh, or sorry, it is necessary to exhaust in different uh, power values, and you would have to perform three to four different tests to try to establish what is the critical power of this muscle. Or, and, and that's the terms they used back then. So those last two points are both incorrect, but they, 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 they came up with tests and metrics and formulas, which are still used to try to establish what is the critical power of muscular group. Um, and more today, it's usually termed critical force or critical torque or whatever, but their concept is completely valid. And they even, they even got into thinking, they didn't use the words, but they got into thinking of what is the reserve of the muscular's force, which what they're talking about there is the W prime. And they start talking about how integral blood flow in between contractions will be in terms of affecting the critical force, which that's all correct. Every one of those things is correct. But the idea that, um, that the critical power is a force that can be kept up for a very long time without fatigue is incorrect that's not true because fatigue will occur below the critical power. Um, it'll just occur way much more slowly, but if fatigue will occur and you will fail, but you won't fail because of the W prime problem, you'll fail because of glycogen utilization and probably central fatigue. And then the last part where it says, um, it cannot be measured with a single test. That is also incorrect because it currently can be measured with a single test in terms of Mark Burnley's and um, Annie Van, Van Atalo's three-minute 
uh, all-out bike test, as well as the five-minute intermittent contractions for critical torque, which are standard, continuously used and standardized in research. So both of those points are wrong, right? But the concept itself is extremely valid and is still used. Even though the mechanism or like what they're trying to, what they're trying to do in terms of predictive ability is not exactly right. That's not right. Because th those are all wrong points. But that doesn't invalidate the usefulness of what they did. And what's the last point we're going to make, Tom? I don't know. I guess no, probably along just like that. Along that exact same line of thinking, what else are we going to talk about? Did we discuss this beforehand? And I <laughs> yep. <laughs> what's, something else, what's something else that we all love and do that had a great idea to start with? But it's not exactly correct, and there's lots of flaws in it, but it doesn't invalidate the value of Oh, idea. you're talking about with CrossFit. And yeah. Like what is, what's CrossFit, what? Tom? constantly varied functional movements performed at high intensity I had to think about it yeah so <laughs> that's yeah that's the definition of fitness and how do you develop fitness you perform constantly varied functional movements high intensity um and you use like uh yeah whatever it is there's a whole bunch of other stuff but it's a very eloquent explanation for what fitness is how to develop fitness how to test it but is it, are, are the mechanisms and the mechanics under that definition entirely correct? Are you speaking movement specific? It just or... pick the first one, constantly varied. Is that the best way to develop fitness for everybody? No. Um, uh, maybe our, for a beginner. <laughs> are functional movements the best way to develop fitness for everybody? No. Is high intensity the best way to develop fitness for everybody? Obviously, no. Yeah. No, it's not. Every one of those things is not entirely correct, right? And mm -hmm. anybody, anybody that has been around fitness for long enough will know every, each one of those things is not entirely correct. Um, but it's not entirely wrong either. That's the thing. And it's pretty damn good. It's a, pretty, it's a really great explanation. And Greg Glassman's work in the early 2000s, like obviously he took work and ideas from lots of other people but it's really good. That stuff is really good and really valid. And you'd be an absolute like moron to suggest it's not because it changed the face of fitness. And the only way it changes the face of something that big is if there's an impact and because there's an underlying truth to it that everyone kind of knows. And just like Wasserman's work, Wasserman's work changed physiology because of what he did. And just like Mona and Shira's work with critical power, it changed the way of thinking of physiology. It just mm -hmm. did because people were like, this is really true. This is true. It's not correct, but there's a lot of truth there. And we'll end with truth emerges more readily from error than from confusion. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the episode and know someone else that will, please share it with them as it helps to grow our reach. If you haven't done so already, please leave us a review wherever you listen. For questions about topics covered on the show or topics we haven't covered yet, send those questions to spiraloutpodcast at gmail.com. We do read the emails and have some topics that were submitted by listeners and we plan to cover them in the near future. You can follow at optimum underscore performance underscore training on Instagram to find out when new episodes are available. 
And last but not least, if you guys are in Calgary, come by and check out the gym. We offer individual design as well as personal training for those close by. If you live far, head over to OptimumPerformanceCalgary.com to get information on remote coaching and athlete camps. Catch you guys in two weeks.